When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode of the Book Riot Podcast is brought to you by the Read Harder Book Log, made by us and Abrams Notary. Created by us at Book Riot, the Read Harder Journal is smartly designed. It's a reading log that consists of entry pages so you can record your reading stats, impressions, and reviews of the book that you read. And dispersed across the pages are 12 challenges that are inspired by our annual Read Harder initiative, which we started in 2015 to encourage readers to pick up passed over books, try out new gen- new genres, that's how you say that word, and choose titles from a wider range of voices and perspectives. So indulge your inner book nerd, read a book about books get a new perspective on current events by reading a book written by an immigrant, find a hidden gem by reading a book published by an independent press, and so many more. Whether you've been participating in our Read Harder Challenge or this is brand new to you, you will find something great in the Read Harder Journal. Check out bookriot.com slash readharderjournal to learn more. This is a great gift for readers. There is no other reading tracker that champions the activist approach to reading that Book Riot takes in quite this way. So again, bookriot.com slash read harder journal to pre-order yours now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 274, recording on Monday, August 20th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I am not here with Rebecca Shinsky, but I am coming to you from bookriot.com. So, with a tech glitch. We're coming out late, as you guys know, those who follow very closely. So what happened? Rebecca and I recorded a great show, another Saturday morning show. Really good show, Saturday morning. Had a lot of fun, talked about a lot of good stuff, things that are new and cool we're talking about. Put the files in Google Drive, sent them off to Kyle. You know, our normal schedule, we're a little late, so, so Kyle texts me uh, last night and says, hey, your file is uh, six kilobytes big. That's the size. And I'm like, that's not long enough. How long is that? He's like, oh, half second. Well, tech glitch, and my side is gone. No side. We have Rebecca's side, um, which you can't do much with, though you hear her ad reads. But we're under the gun here for getting out for you guys this week. Both of us have crazy schedules. So we're trying to experiment. And the experiment is uh, radio host Jeff. Pick your favorite um, talk show host that does uh, a single and that's what we're going to try to do. I'm going to not try to do a very bad Robin Williams and Good Morning Vietnam impression, nothing like that. But I'm going to run down the stories we talked about all by myself. And we're going to see how it goes. Let me know what you think about this. Podcast at bookriot.com. If you hate it, we won't do it again. If you love it, still probably won't do it again. This is t- heavy sledding. We like, to, I like to, we like to have two hosts on here. But extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. All right, let's get the show underway. Let's see how we do here. First of all, I want to mention something that you're, you might be interested in. So as some of you are listening to already, we have a podcast called Recommended, in which we get authors, book-related people, sort of nerds, to talk to us for a few minutes about a book they love, and we make a podcast out of it. There are two guests per episode. 
uh, Jen Northington, who is the host of our Get Booked podcast and our SFF Yeah podcast. She produces this show, and she does most of the interviews. No, not all, but what you're going to hear is just that author talking about their book. We, we interview them, but we cut ourselves out to get a nice like seven or eight minute monologue, um, not unlike this, where they're talking about a book they really like. And to promote the new season, we're doing a giveaway of 16 of the books that have been recommended on Recommended. And you could go win it. Go to bookriot.com slash recommended three. That's the number three, not the letter three. To win 16 books featured on the show. Link in the show notes there. If you're not the kind of person who just like instinctively remembers long URL codes all by yourself. Go check that out. I did an episode last one. I'm doing an episode for the next upcoming season. Really looking forward to it. A lot of great stuff there. First sponsor, Google Play Books. I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you didn't know this. But you can now download and listen to audiobooks from Google Play. That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. No subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google e- ecosystem. I tried it out. I got Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, narrated by the incomparable, the great, Jim Dale. And I've been, I put it on there because I wanted a couple of things. One, I can activate it by voice very simply. And I got it for me and my kids to listen to while we're in our car. And I don't have a fancy car system. I've got to like basically plug my phone into the carburetor to get it to work. And it's not very well integrated at all. So using the voice assistant to get the thing started, hey, Google, play Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Bada beep, bada beep, bada beep. You're all going. Really fun in the car to listen to. They, they listen along. They're old enough now. Really exciting time uh, to have a good audiobook in the car wherever you are. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash book riot. There's a link in the show notes, but that's what it is. That's g.co dot play. <laughs> that's g.co slash play slash book riot. Go to the link in the show notes for $10 off your first one. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. The feedback about Tor. And their decision to delay the availability of their ebooks to libraries for four months after the release date continues to be a fount of interesting feedback and a worm that led to another worm that led to another can of worms, another can of worms. So we're going to be following this story for a while, a little bit. Not really the tour story itself exactly, but all the stuff it unveils about how libraries work, the pricing structures. Um, this world we live in about licensing fees for libraries, the pros, the cons, the various system librarians have to put up with, why you can't get that ebook you really want or that audiobook you really want right away. You have to wait much longer in some cases, and you have to do have to print title. So the first bit of follow-up is from a, a book ride insider. goes by Quailing. I don't, I don't know her real name, but that's, the, that's why we use these names. So she says, first, as a consumer of library ebooks from my local library, I can say that there are at least here people definitely read backlist ebooks. I do it a lot. It's rare that there isn't a hold list on ebooks even several years old. Second, as a librarian at an academic library involved in ebook purchasing, at least in my library, we have a strong preference for paying a higher upfront cost and never having to rebuy. Shelf space isn't an issue, but staff time and effort is, and having to sit down and go over lists of titles, look at usage stats, and possibly renegotiating contracts, all of those are headaches we want to avoid. Also, I think that librarians have a bias towards wanting to use our resources to buy materials instead of rent them. Makes sense to me. 
Some of our vendors even allow us to purchase unlimited, unlimited simultaneous checkout packages. No hold lists. Everyone in the college can access the book at the same time if they want to. We are loving this and are throwing money at it whenever we get the chance. Academic libraries, again, that's a, that, it's worms all the way down with libraries, but academic libraries is a special use case. I'm not, academic press has different you know, cost structures, different missions, so interesting that the simultaneous downloads is a thing. Um, this, I'm now going to create a, a word picture of a librarian, a composite librarian, if you will, of a bunch of the librarians that emailed us or tweeted us about this particular issue. First thing I want to say is that this is great. Really, and we're not going to get to it all, but I want to keep getting the feedback because I get things wrong, we get things straightened out, we discover new little corners of this particular story. So one thing that I heard from librarians about is which one do they prefer? The higher upfront fee where you get to use it forever, like PRH, which is $90 for any PRH title, but you can you can keep it, you could check it out forever, only one check at a time, but there's not a limit on the number of checkouts or something like Macmillan, which is Tor's parent company, where it's lower up front but has a fixed number of checkouts, you know, 24, 26, something like that, or a 52-week expiration, whichever comes first. What I heard is, by and large, neither. They like the HarperCollins model a little bit better, which is um, more checkouts, more flat fees on time, except in the case of some titles where they know that they're going to need a couple of copies for a long time. So I use the Stephen King example. Like, you know, with Stephen King, if you're, period, you're buying from PRH, which is actually a Simon Schuster, Stephen King is with Scrivener, which is Simon Schuster. But let's say, for example, um, it's a, a PRH title that you know you're going to want in your library forever, basically. Wouldn't you then rather pay the $90 up front for unlimited usage forever? And the librarian said, well, yes and no, because here's the thing. Initially, there's a lot of demand for that new title. But over time, even for most titles, you only need a couple of digital copies available. It can be some hold lists, but they're not going to be unmanageable. People can wait, but it's not nuts. So what they prefer is a blend, of course. Like, all right, give us a couple. Let us choose for each title whether to pay for the upfront or pay for the recurring. And we'll come back or check it out and it's not as needed. Though there was some preference just in terms of staff time and management headaches, paying a premium to, to buy and forget, basically. There's, there's, a, there's definitely a demand for, this might not be sort of in terms of dollar value, the best we get, but we don't have to worry about whether or not book's going to get checked out, make determinations about whether or not to renew it for another year. On a title-by-title basis, you can imagine for an acquisitions librarian the kind of headache and stress that would be. So basically every month have to determine what you're going to pay for what and for how long and whether or not it's worth it. So some sort of blended system is what people are asking for. Another wrinkle in the tour situation, it's not just that the titles aren't available right away, but you can't even order them as if they were you as on the normal schedule. So, for example, let's say it's an, uh, a September one release date, street date. So, if I want to buy the ebook, I'm going to pay three ninety nine on September first. Well, for the library, for the library, they're not going to be able to get it till January first, right? But they can't order it as if it's the September one date, and then just have it unlock on January first. They have to order it as if it's a January one date, which now gives them two sets of quote unquote publication dates, because the original publication date is there. 
that's available, but they can't use that. They got to remember. So at January 1, they got to go back and say, okay, what came out four months ago that I want to add to my collection now? And determine what kind of demand there will be for this title that's been out for, for four months already. So that's, a, that's an interesting wrinkle that's going on there. I think this is a huge mess. I know that that's going to be a surprise, that um, this is a huge mess. But here's, what, here's, my, here's your homework for your librarians out there. Tell me about audiobooks. Talked about print books. Talked about audio, we talked about e-books. But I haven't heard anything yet about the pricing of audiobooks. And if it compares, how, how, was it to, how was it compare, say, if you know this, to buying and managing and checking out sort of the 50 CD Ken Follett audiobook versus a digital version of that through Overdrive, through Libby, through 3M Solution, whatever else it might be. That's one where it seems to me clearly the digital advantage over physical from the user is incomparable and incalculable. But are you getting charged up the yang for that pleasure? Or is it or was it fifty DVD or fifty CDs of the thing? Was it like a few hundred bucks and it was just a disaster and the disc would get lost and scratch and everything else like that? I still get a bunch of physical DVDs from our library for my kids and whatever, you know, sometimes we just want to see some an older movie. And the condition of those DVDs is rough. You know, it's not like a print book where, you know, if a page is ripped, you can kind of skip it. If you've got a big gash in the middle of the DVD or Blu-ray or whatever else it might be, unplayable, disaster. So I'm wondering what the shelf life of those audio CD sets is. Like, you get a scratch in, in like, disc 26 of Pillars of the Earth. I mean, that seems pretty rough. So that, that's the, that, I'm, I'm willing to open that. That's the can of worms I want to be opening. Those, those are desirable worms right now. Really good feedback from all of you librarians out there. I guess I had in my mind that the acquisitions librarian's job was pretty tough, but I didn't realize the layers of complication that ebooks brought to the table about it. Print books, got my head around. They wear, they tear. You kind of keep them on the shelf until you, you can't use them anymore. They get lost, they get damaged, whatever. But this digital situation where you're renting a license to, to kilobits, Hopefully one's longer than my lost uh, file. And how to manage it correctly. And the plurality of systems that you guys have to manage to keep all of this stuff straight or approaching straight or straight-ish does seem like a huge pain in the derriere. But translate that pain for, your, for our interest. Let us know. What else do I need to know? Speaking of physical media... Story this week um, came out from, uh, let's see, who is this? I don't know. I'll put a link in the show notes. PwC Global, their entertainment media outlook for 2018 to 2022, looking at the sales of physical entertainment goods, books, movies, video games. What's the outlook? What's the, what's the future look like for physical versions of things that are now also available digitally? The headline of this, uh, the, the, the title of this uh, story that you're going to see in the show notes is called Gutenberg's Revenge. Saw it tweeted around a lot recently as this story came out. Look how great physical books are doing. Print is back, baby. Print will never die. Because this study says books are the only form of physical media on which spending is expected to grow over the next five years. 
about 1% a year growth is what this group is guessing, forecasting, guesstimating. This feels like a guesstimate to me. Physical consumer books will grow about 1% a year for the next five years compared to physical traditional video gaming, physical recorded music, physical home video, which are all down and going down. Traditional video gaming down you know, about 5% a year as people move to downloading their content onto their consoles or computers. Physical recorded music still going down, down 8% last year, expecting another 8%, then down 10%, down 12%. Now it's getting worse. Physical recorded music and traditional video gaming getting worse. Interesting, traditional video gaming is flat for 2017 over prior years, and these big losses in physical video games, I'm guessing, are due to the fact that platforms are shipping with big hard drives. You can put your games on, and that bandwidth is you know, a lot easier. Downloading a 20-gigabyte 20, 20 game now isn't what it was 5, 10, certainly 15 years ago. I don't know if you could do it. I remember trying to download video games on my old PC 10 or 15 years ago, no, longer than that. I was in college, and it would take you know several days. Now, you have a good Ethernet connection, even good Wi-Fi. Get that pretty quick. Recorded music, I, th- I think we'd understand what's going on there. But that there is still physical recorded music sales to erode is kind of shocking. That can still be down 12%, 15% a year going forward. I don't know if this is just the last gasp of CDs. Are they expecting vinyl to go away? I know vinyl's propping up some corners of the music publishing business. I can't believe it's that much. But physical recorded music going down. Physical home video, they don't explain this. But it's expected to see a little bit of a bump in the next couple of years before sort of going down again. I don't know if there's new like hologram crystals that are coming out that I'm going to have to buy Star Wars on again. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. But that's one where there's, there's some tumult there. So is this good news for books? I guess a, a, same way of asking the, a different way of asking the same question is, is this bad news? For these other industries, take take thirty seconds. What do you think I'm going to say about this? You've heard me rant about ebook pricing, things how these go, skepticism about yay physical books. Think what? How do you think I'm going to say about this? You done? You ready? I think I'd like to see the graph of these same industries: consumer books, video gaming, recorded music, home video where we see the graph of growth in total sales. Because my guess is that video game sales are up big. That home video is up big. If you include Netflix, Hulu, HBO, that's home video, right? Not to mention renting movies on your you know, Chromecast or what else you might be doing. And that physical and that book sales will be about flat, 1%, 2%. So is that good? If, if your whole industry is up, does it matter what format it is? And is this a good sign? Is this really Gutenberg's revenge? Or is this the sort of dead cat bounce? Is this a sign of you know, weakness, a sign of being left behind by the times, that you're not fully on board the digital train? This is what publishers have been trying to do. We've been talking about this show for a long time. This is what publishers have been wanting to do, is to protect the primacy of print. And one way of doing that is by not going all in on ebook services, especially you know, your oysters of the world, your scribs of the world, the other things where you can get the Netflix for books. You know, I have another thought about this. 
I think that Netflix for book paradigm that we talked about when Oyster came out and Scribd came out a while ago is no longer wrong, no longer like completely useful in a way that it once was. There was a time when what you could stream on Netflix was mostly third-party content, and you get your DVDs in the mail. I still get DVDs in the mail because I'm a 1,000 years old. That's a separate thing. Don't judge me. I don't care. But we were look- Michelle and I were looking through Netflix, and we are watching Luke Cage, making three-second season of Luke Cage, and we were both, and you just hit it, you just see it every now and again. How much of Netflix's streaming content is Netflix owned, produced, controlled, always available? I think now, if you're going to call something the Netflix for books, and not only has to be digitally available, unlimited, so on and so forth, but it has to be have a lot of original, compelling content because that's Netflix now, that's HBO now. We were talking about uh, HBO getting a full series order for uh, their version of Watchmen, Hulu and adaptation races, all these things happening because these big platforms realize that they need their own controlled IP and content to get someone to subscribe for it versus another one. Disney is going to be doing the same with its streaming service. You're going to get Marvel stuff you can't get other places. You're going to get Disney stuff, Pixar stuff, all the things that, that they have there. Whereas with an Oyster or a Scribd, if it launched today, even with a bunch of, consumer, even with a bunch of traditional publisher buy-in, they, they're not, they couldn't be called a Netflix for books unless there is some exclusive of stuff you really want that's great that you're going to talk about that you can't get anywhere else, enough that will tip you over the edge actually subscribe for something. A couple of problems with that. One, what is that content? Two, how much is it going to cost you? And three, the lead time for writing and producing books is long. So if you started today, it would take a long time. Now, I guess this, I guess this service, this hypothetical Netflix 2.0 for books or 3.0, however you want to do it, could just buy books that are, you know, from agents, like normal acquisition projects, but say, this is going to be available only through our digital service and audiobooks or print. I guess maybe you could make it available as a print book in the bookstore too, but the only way you can get it digitally is a service. You can see the complication. And I think it'd be interesting, you know, as we say, you can't A-B test the universe, but would the aggregate sales for publishing be up if there were platforms where you could get I'm not, you know, pick Game of Thrones. I mean, Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones, the, a serialized version of Game of Thrones, as George R. R. Mar is writing it. I mean, it'd be one page every six weeks. I don't know what it would be. But let's just say, a big-time property, and this was the only place you could get it. Get romance authors on board, right? This is the only place you can get my book. You know, get N.K. Jemison, who just last night won her third straight Hugo Award for Best Novel. So you know what? The next N.K. Jemison is only going to be available on our platform. Would that work? Nice thing about Netflix is it's not cannibalizing its DVD sales or movie theater sales because it's the only place you can get this stuff. So a different business model would have to happen as well. So I don't know. Is this good? Do you think publishing... I think publishing played its hand the way it wanted to play the cards it had. Like if you would have told... If you would have told publishing, you know, uh, big publishing, BP, five years ago, you're going to have a steady 1% or 2% growth over the next five years for print. You know, the whole ebooks aren't going to take over the universe. Downloadable audiobooks are going to be up. Would you sign for this world? 
I think they would. And I'm afraid that this is a be careful what you wish for because you will surely get a situation. Is it making books more or less part of culture to have it so difficult to get them or so much more difficult than these other services? Music, music was forced the gun to its head into this situation. Napster, they just, it just got out of hand and books saw that and were terrified. Video had it happen to it by third parties who saw an angle and they went a different way. You know, licensing content from big studios that they could then stream. I guess initially just renting out DVDs by mail, which they kind of boiled the frog Netflix, right? Well, we're, we're, renting, we're letting Blockbuster rent out DVDs. What's the difference with mail? No big deal. Well, it's a streaming service. They can watch it. They're paying us for the rights. It's kind of like renting it, I can see. Suddenly, uh-oh. Netflix is a monster. They're producing stuff that's not... They're not just selling our stuff and giving us a cut. They're competing with our properties. They're making our properties less and less important. Now, the other players have to get busy. Disney, the big guys. Consolidation. You're seeing you know, Comcast uh, buying Fox's entertainment assets. Is the, 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 the stars are aligning in big content, big video content. And you know what? It's going to turn out, I think... I don't know who's going to win, HBO buys Hulu, whatever it's going to be. There's going to be three or four big players that you're going to have to buy subscriptions to if you want them all. And boy, doesn't that sound like the good old days of ABC, NBC, CBS, where there's a few big channels, networks, platforms competing for the majority of the eyeballs. Don't know if it's good, don't know if it's bad, but it sure looks like it's headed that way. Find a link in the show notes if there's anything else you find interesting there. All right. You know what? You're going to hear Rebecca just for a minute. Here comes her sponsor. This next sponsor is coming to you straight from my wheelhouse. We are sponsored this week by Imagination Press, which is the children's book imprint of the American Psychological Association. And they have a ton of wonderful mindfulness-related titles for kids. Mindfulness is a great way to cope with stress and to enhance your mental well-being. It's not just for adults. Kids can learn to live mindfully, too. In Be Still, Be Like Buzzy Bee by Frank Cilio, Bentley shows his forest friends that they don't have to be busy bees all the time. They can use meditation to be still and help themselves feel calm. And in Grow Grateful by Sage Foster Lasser and John Lasser, you can read the story of Keiko who goes on a class camping trip and learns how to express gratitude. Um, Again, Imagination Press, which is from the American Psychological Association, has a range of books that can help kids learn to live mindfully. You can learn about them at imaginationpressfamily.com. Imagination is like imagination without the I in the front of it. Um, so imaginationpressfamily.com offers extra resources on mindfulness and anxiety. Be Still is coming out in August and Grow Grateful is coming out in October. So you can look for those. And again, check out imaginationpressfamily.com for more mindfulness and anxiety related titles for kids. You know, this back to school time is a great time to be thinking about um, managing day-to-day stresses. And I, I, you 
you know, have talked many times on the show about the role that mindfulness and meditation play in my life. Um, it would have been amazing to have those kinds of tools available to me as a kid. So if this is ringing your bells or sounds interesting, you can check out Be Still by Frank Cilio, Grow Grateful by Sage Foster Lasser and John Lasser, or search up imaginationpressfamily.com for extra resources and more books. So thank you to Imagination Press. Someone who would sign for 1% annual growth in sales is Barnes & Noble. We've been talking about Barnes & Noble. We're going to talk about Barnes & Noble long after if it ever goes out of business, Barnes & Noble will still be a a topic of conversation. There was a a piece in the Times this week by Alexander Alter and Tiffany Sue about Riggio and the turmoil at the top of Barnes & Noble over the last several years. This one, I think, is, I don't know, I think it's codifying, articulating, putting onto the record sort of a whisper network thing about Riggio's leadership. Basically that the rumors seem to be that he's a micromanager and that kind of involvement from not the sideline necessarily, but like that, that, that armchair quarterbacking that Riggio is doing of the CEOs is a problem to the point where the Times asked Riggio point blank, are you a micromanager? And he has to say no. I think by the time you get to the point where the New York Times is asking you to deny sort of a, you know, a group, uh, a concordance of whispers about whether or not you're a micromanager, you probably are. I mean, certainly running through four CE, non-interim CEOs in the last five years, something, if, if, it's not, if it's not you, if it's not Riggio, are they just rolling snake eyes four times? I guess it's statistically possible. But is it more, what's more likely, to roll snake eyes four times in a row or that you're rolling loaded dice? I don't know. I don't know. 1% growth a year. There's a really good stat here that I think I've known. I mean, I've had the numbers in the back of my head, but I've really not seen it visualized this way. This is one great thing about data visualization. It can make plain math, which can kind of sometimes seem cold and personal and tough to wrap your head around. So this is the number of stores of independent bookstores and Barnes & Noble stores since 2009. For those of you listening to the second episode of Annotated, go listen to that if you haven't, where we talked about how did independent bookstores stop, avoid going extinct. You know that 2008 or so was, was, a, was a bottoming out. But since then, in the intervening 10 years, independent bookstores have grown from about 1,700 bookstores in 2009 to almost 2,500 today, whereas Barnes & Noble has fewer stores now than it did in 2009. I should say this does not include a number of Barnes & Noble college-themed bookstores that the company ran up until 2015. They took those out just as you can get an apples-to-apples comparison. Barnes & Noble is a quote from Ryan Raffaelli, who was a guest on that episode of podcast. Barnes & Noble has struggled to figure out where they fit in the larger ecosystem, given that the continues to spread further and further apart. Basically, you know that term anchor store that you hear of a strip mall? Anchors work both ways, right? It anchors that strip mall, but anchors are hard to pull up when you need to get out of there. When that, when that boat needs to move, you're anchored. And Barnes & Noble has found itself anchored into a book-buying universe that's changed. Riggio said for this story that Barnes & Noble would close big, underperforming stores, anchors, and open smaller ones in more highly trafficked areas. In the last decade, the chain has closed more than 150 stores and now operates only 633. 
We have to move back to where the action is, he said. We have to follow the population. Interesting. Different model, I think, than the anchor store metaphor for how these things work. The idea of the anchor store in a mall or a strip mall is that if you have the anchor store, people go, that's a destination for that location. That's a destination for that strip mall. It's a destination for that mall, conventional mall. And so if you get, you're going to go to Gap, you're going to go to Macy's, then the other stores in the mall kind of get some you know, secondary benefit. They're right in the hotels with the anchor store. What Riggio is sort of saying here is that, A, our store isn't an anchor store. People aren't just going to go to our store because they want to go to a bookstore because, I mean, I'm a good example. If I know what book I want, I'm not going to drive across town to the Barnes & Noble to go get it. I'm just going to order it online. Amazon, any place else, just what's easier for me. Especially if I'm not getting a discount to order. Especially if I'm getting, I mean, getting a discount to order at home and I have to drive over there and get it. So basically, rather than sort of having a, basically a, a cheese, cheese on the trap way, way far away from the, mouse, the mice are, try to get them to go across the whole kitchen floor, he's saying, let's go where the mice are. And the mice are in these downtown, highly trafficked areas where smaller stores work. That's kind of what independent bookstores do. There are some independent bookstores, of course, that are destinations in their own right. But even Powell's is downtown in the Pearl District here in Portland. The Strand is in Union Square in New York City. People are just walking by it. Just from watching people going in and out of bookstores, I think there's something to be said for people will go to a bookstore if they don't have to go to a bookstore, if that makes sense. If there's one where they're going, they like, people like to stop in and look around a bookstore. They'll pick something up, sell you some coffee, whatever it might be, some socks, whatever. But to make the bookstore destination, it's a tricky proposition because what are the use cases? I know what I want, in which case I can order online for cheaper. Don't have to make the trip. Or I don't know what I want. And so I'm going to the bookstore sort of blind to look around for something. It seems like both of those use cases are pretty bad. Now, there's some nerds out there, book people. We'll go to a bookstore just to spend a few hours. But Barnes & Noble is a giant publicly traded company. Can't be nerd only. Can't work that way. So I don't know. I guess the, the silver lining piece of this is that if Regio really is the problem, is it's not a business problem. Like if it's not, that the, let's say there is a way to solve for Barnes & Noble. Okay, it's not going to beat Amazon. Forget about that. That's garbage. You, you, not, don't think about that. But, can Barnes & Noble still have multiple hundred store, physical stores in the U.S. serve as a bulwark to the publishing industry against sort of a new reality of the, the Amazon hegemony? I don't know. But if it can, maybe what this article is suggesting is it's not the business that's the problem. It could be that the guy is the problem, which is good in this regard, which is one guy is easier to fix than the whole ecosystem working against you. If your roof is leaking, it's easier to solve for the leak in the roof than it is to just get rid of rain. Everyone's concern is this is raining so hard on Barnes & Noble that no matter what they do, the whole ho- their whole house is going to get wet. But there's a chance that actually there's just this one part of the roof that we screwed up. And if we just take care of it, it's still going to rain. We still got to be careful. But, you know, we can weather this storm and have a, have a shelter here for a while. I've gone down that metaphor. So there's that. Probably not good news for Barnes & Noble if this next company takes off. Spotify for Cookbooks prepares to launch. It's called Cookbook, but the abbreviation is CKBK. 
with tech startups, they, I think they treat vowels like it's Wheel of Fortune, like it costs them more money to use vowels, Tumblr, Tinder, Grinder, whatever. It's okay. Just, just use Cookbook. I don't know. Be your best cook. Rebecca and I were talking on Slack when this first came out, saying we both would find... We, this is interesting. Spotify for Cookbook. Interestingly, not Netflix for Cookbook, as I just said. Spotify for Cookbooks implies something a little bit different, which I'll get to here in a minute. Basically, this started as a Kickstarter campaign in 2015, where entrepreneur Matthew Cockerell and publishers John Croft and writer Nadia Arumugam launched the 1000 Cookbooks Project, which aimed to compile the best and most essential cookbooks of all time. The project now has evolved into a digital subscription service called CKBK, which builds itself as the Spotify for Cookbooks. In early July, CKBK unveiled a Kickstarter campaign in anticipation of its commercial launch later this fall, raised more than $55,000, surpassing its $25,000 goal, with more than 5,000 people signing up for the service's wait list. Like Spotify, for a fixed monthly fee, it will be $8.99 in the U.S., users can browse cookbooks collection of more than 500 cookbooks and 100,000 recipes, which Carkwell said was just the starting point. We have a huge pipeline of content that we will add to the service as it grows. Now, when you hear Spotify, for, what does Spotify for X mean right now? We just talked, I just talked a little bit about what Netflix for X means. Now, it means something, different, means something different than it did three years ago. What does Spotify for X mean, necessarily? What is Spotify? If you haven't used Spotify, I think, Rebecca and I talked about this a little bit in the Go Show, that she'll never, you know, it's kind of like uh, Hemingway short stories, Lost in a Taxi Cab that what we expect from Spotify is not just that you can type in and get the new national record or whatever and listen to it, which you can, but you have something else, which is you have an algorithm that will suggest things to you, curated playlists, discovery, podcasts, other kinds of audio material. Because what's not interesting here, I don't think, is if it's just 5,000 cookbooks that you can get as an ebook on your iPad. That's not bad, but you can get that at the library. You can get that. You can buy digital cookbooks right now. Why would this service be better than that? Especially dedicated only cookbooks for nine dollars a month. Scribd, you get all a bunch of stuff for you know a little bit more, but you get a whole range of books. I think it's tough too because you know I, I'm an intermittent cook, but when I look for a recipe, it's called Google, or I've got an Epicurious app. Lots of recipes. Look for my buttermilk pancakes, I find it. Get a couple of choices. What would a curated playlist of recipes look like? Spotify knows what I like to listen to because it's keeping track of what I'm listening to. Will Cookbook be able to... Do, do I mark on Cookbook? I, I made the, the uh, chicken cordon bleu and the um, potstickers and it's going to recommend something else for me? How's it going to deliver to me custom content? based on my, my history and other users' history. Because you also need, the other thing you need for services like Spotify, which is takes your information and spits out something back at you, is the information and data of the usage of other people that are like you. If it's really going to unveil, surface, surprising, interesting, and otherwise useful kinds of recipes. That's what Rebecca wants. I talked Rebecca down from, from being very excited to be circumspect about what's the actual product here. If it's just a bunch of digitized cookbooks, I guess that's interesting for a cookbook aficionado. But in order to break out, I think you've got to, you've got to offer a value that is more than just the sum of the, those cookbooks. You've got to do something with those cookbooks. 
CKBK has struck licensing deals with major publishers, including Simon & Schuster, HMH, Workman, and Rodale, many of whom are among the beta testers of the service. New agreements are being signed on an ongoing basis. So they've got content from, I mean, Workman alone, I mean, Workman alone, so enough cookbooks to fill the whole thing. Are are publishers going to, why would publishers going to be more interested in licensing cookbooks than other forms of books? Because there's a, there's a loud absence in that list I just read you. PRH. PRH, you know, we've talked about more than 50% of trade publishing in the U.S. If a service like this can't get PRH, it's hard to know. You know, they can't really be the go-to service. You're going to miss stuff. But we know cookbook sell. The, the gain stuff, the Magnolia Table, that book continues. The, probably the, one of the best-selling nonfiction books of the year. Maybe the best-selling nonfiction book of the year will be that Gaines book. So there's definitely an appetite for it. Now, are there enough cookbook nerds out there that will pay $9 a month versus using their Epicurious or Google apps or whatever else they're going to do? Hard to say. I think it's hard to know. Let's do a couple more stories. How about one more spot for Book Riot thing? Book Riot Insiders. Have you heard about this? It's our membership program for Book Riot people, Book Riot fans. We now have a 14-day trial for Book Riot Insider's novel subscription, and the first 14 days are free. Here's what you get. Exclusive access to a twice-a-month newsletter from behind the scenes about what goes on and what goes into making Book Riot. You also get an exclusive podcast episode a month, a remix show, where hosts of our various shows and different combinations get together to talk about a mutual interest. Rincey and I, she's co-host of our Red or Dead podcast about Mystery Thrills. We talked about Parks and Rec and The Good Place, the Shureverse, as we called it, I think, but probably not. Rincey's too smart to let me get away with something like that. Amanda and I once talked the whole episode about the first line of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Rincey and Rebecca talked about cooking, all sorts of stuff there, one of those new a month. Right now, the episode is a bunch of our Book Riot insiders dialed into our voicemail line and recommended a recent read. And we stitched those together into a long episode. We can hear other book fans talk about a book that they like. We have a weekly swag giveaway, win a big stack of books. And the new release index, which is a basically a catalog of new and upcoming books that's curated by our very own lovely, wonderful, voracious, fiercely smart and funny Liberty Hardy who hosts our All the Books podcast, writes our new books newsletter, where she picks out the most exciting new books coming out. Something Rebecca and I wanted from the very early days of doing Book Riot, which is how to know what's coming out next, when's coming out, what to look for. You can go, you can flag your favorites, see what she's particularly interested in. Other people um, from the, the company will contribute something they're interested in. You can go check it out. Your bookish bags of perk is waiting. Go to bookriot.com slash insiders to find out more. Last story. I'm doing okay. I hope so. I'm getting a little tired. It's hard to do this all by yourself. How do these people that do this for five hours a day do it? I guess they have a team of producers and they get paid like kings. That's how they do it. Now, a lot of you are on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. 
but I don't use the stories feature. Don't know what it is. Don't know. To, I mean, I know what it is. I, I watch other people sometimes. I, I don't know why I would want to do this. I don't even know what I would do. So I, I'm a consumer, but not a creator of Instagram stories. But an interesting story this week, this has appeared in Slate, about basically what amounts to a, you know, one of those chain letters you used to get as a kid, but for books. I'm looking for people to participate in a huge book exchange, begins a message that's been popping up on Instagram, mostly in stories for the past few months. All you have to do is buy your favorite book and send it to a stranger. Now, that's going to sound familiar. It's also going to, you know, pyramid schemes This work this way, multi-level marketing, but this is for books. And I think it's a fun story. We're getting, this, I, I suggest reading the whole story in Slate because there's a lot of interesting things. But basically... It happens in stories, and you send one, you send a couple books out, and you with the promise of getting a whole bunch of books back. Because as you get more and more people, the people down, the earlier people, the purple earlier in the pyramid scheme, have a lot more people funneling books their way. So you need to get more and more people. I mean, that's how pyramids. You need more and more. That's why they eventually fall apart, especially when it comes to like a Madoff situation. One thing about Instagram is that the the stories they they expire after a day which can make it hard to trace back to original source. So, you know, some of the thing you might feel weird about, like getting your giving and getting your information isn't as bad. You still have to give your mailing address out. But you know what? A lot of people's mailing address is pretty easy to find. Anyway, you have a P.O. box, have it sent to work, something like that. When user A messages user B to tell her that she wants to participate in the exchange, user B provides a, user A with two addresses. One for A to mail a book to and one to pass on to A's followers that end up wanting to take part once A posts the note. Social media also gives these chain letters like a a virality that they really couldn't. You can reach so many people. And only, you know, a certain percentage of them are going to sign up. Almost everyone agrees, though, that one of the fishiest seeming elements of the message is that it promises participants 36 books in exchange for sending out one. I don't know where they get the number 36, that's the one part that seems like it's a pyramid scheme. You're not going to get 36. That's just the math they come up with. If everyone participates and it works like it should, you're going to get 36. But you could get more. You could get zero. There's a little bit There's a little bit there. People are doing this and saying it works. They're getting books. They're getting lots of books. So here's what I want to hear. If you've done this, let us know how it worked. What did you give? What did you get? What's your experience like? Also, if you want to participate, there's a link in the show notes. You can go check it out there. be pretty interesting. I was thinking about maybe we should, maybe Book Riot should do this and see what happens. The thing is, if we put on our social, if I put on our Instagram account, we have like you know one hundred and eighty thousand followers. It could get insane. We need to figure out some. We don't really like to give out our, our real contact information because we've had some incidents of people behaving badly, and frankly, that's most of our editorial staff are women, and things cool are not cool. I, I don't know if you've heard, but things can be uncool for women online. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I should do it. Having people send it to the office here and you know, do a little research project about it. I think it's interesting. People giving and giving books. G- getting and giving books just for the love of books. To have fun. It's like getting surprise book mail. Who doesn't like that? That's the show, guys. I'm done. I'm tapped out. I'm going to go lay down. Thanks for hanging in there. It's a fun experiment. I can see why radio producers talk in these sort of clipped tones with a little like pause in between them it sounds profound but really what it is is you, you just need a break for like 10 like like four seconds like say like and, and then i'm going to tell you something and then like one 
to, okay, what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? Thank you guys so much for listening. Talk to you next week.